Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Hi, welcome, Mary. We have a very special guest today, Mary Latham. And on October 29th, 2016, she took off in her mom's car to every single state in the U.S. to collect stories of human kindness. Mary relied entirely upon the kindness of others to take her into their homes and help her to connect with all sorts of big and very small stories of kindness. And I was incredibly honored to be one of the last homes to host her on her epic journey across the country. And my life has forever been changed because of meeting her. Her mission spanned through 154 strangers' homes in all 50 states, covered more than 43,000 miles in her mom's Subaru, nicknamed Old Blue. All of her stories are going into a book that uh, she plans on donating to hospital waiting rooms across the country. And she's received national attention, appearing on MSNBC, The Today Show, Kelly Clarkson Show, and in the pages of Washington Post, along with local media in almost every state she visited across the country. She's currently writing her book and continues to speak on the More Good mission today, inspiring others with stories of hope, proving there really is more good in the world. You just have to look for it. So I know your physical journey of getting in the car started on October 29th, but that wasn't the beginning. Can you tell us about December 14th and how this all started? Yeah. So I was living in New York City at the time, and I was working at a place called the Practicing Law Institute. Uh, It was kind of like a nine to five that provided health insurance stability and kind of allowed me to be able to do other things that I really loved, like my photography. And I also nannied for a few families in the city. And December 14th, 2012, I was walking into work. And it was around 9 a.m. I had just gotten in. I opened up my Google News and all of the information was coming out about the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. And he was still an active shooter at the time. We were still getting updates. I was kind of just sitting there hitting the refresh button, reading the horrific news that I think we were all pretty traumatized by. And it was, you know, now this is such a common Thing that we see, which is very unfortunate. But in the beginning, I mean, that was really like it was little kids. It was it was just such a horrific incident. And I remember being just frozen in like horror and like refreshing the computer and just like just in shock. And someone that I worked with came by my desk and he had a coffee from Starbucks with him. And he kind of interrupted me and said, you know, oh, you should have come with, with me to Starbucks today. And I was ignoring him and staring at the computer and I said, you know, I couldn't afford it. And he said, no, it was free. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I kind of finally took myself away from the screen and I looked at him and he said, yeah, there was a man in earlier who was buying gift cards for employees because it was right before Christmas and he was getting them Christmas presents. And at the very end, he asked the barista for one more gift card for $100. And he said, run it out on the line behind me. 
And all of those people got a free coffee. And, and one of those people was the, the man that I worked with at the time. And he had been going through a pretty rough time in his life. Uh, him and his wife had just separated. His mom had passed away a few months prior. He had back surgery coming up. I mean, it was not his year. He was just turning 30. And I can still see his face. I mean, he was just glowing about this free, you know, coffee that someone purchased for him at Starbucks. And so it was just such a, you know, weird moment to have yourself glued to the computer screen to be reading about all of this tragedy while simultaneously a block away, this other thing was happening. Mm -hmm. And so he walked away from my desk and I got on the phone with my mom and I told her the story about the coffee and everything. And then I quickly switched over to the shooting because she didn't know about it yet. And I was giving her all the information and going on and on. And I said, you know, I had to babysit that night for a child the same age of the children that were getting killed. And I said, mom, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Like, I, I'm going to be crying on the kid all night. And how could someone do this? And how how is there so much bad in the world? Like, everything is just horrible. And she said, Mary, you got to remember that coffee story that you told me and you got to focus on that. You know, there's always going to be tragedies and horrible things that will inevitably happen in our lives, in the world, but there'll always be more good out there if you look for it. So that was kind of the conversation that kickstarted this whole idea of really going out there and looking for the more good that she claimed was out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't obviously long after that, that, um, that she passed away. So her conver- that conversation was kind of a little bit of wisdom that I kind of let guide the rest of my life after she passed. And um, she spent time in a hospital waiting room that final week. And that was where the idea of not only looking for the good, but also kind of compiling it into something that I could provide for other people that had to be there next. I was very fortunate. I'm one of four children. My parents were married 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we were all there together with her. Her mother was there. And I remember being in the waiting room and seeing another couple who was divorced and fighting over their daughter who was passing away, if she could see her ex-boyfriend or not. There was another man that was sitting in the corner and he was alone And I just felt like in a place where everyone is about to lose someone that they love. And it feels so hopeless to be able to provide them with something that could give them a a shred of hope during that time. So um, that was really where this whole thing was born (laughs) the week my mom died. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell us a little bit about your mom? Oh, yeah. I mean, she was the best. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, like, I feel like one of the nicest things that anyone has ever really said, and and a couple of people have said it in different ways throughout the journey on the road. And even since then is when you tell them what you're doing, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, that's really cool. Or they don't maybe completely grasp it. They're like, oh, you're going on a road trip. Like, oh, what was your favorite state? But when you really explain, no, I'm going to stay with strangers and I'm going to stay in every single state in a couple different areas and try to find the human kindness stories that we don't get to hear about anymore. And, you know, I'm doing it alone and it's taking me this long. And, you know, when their immediate reaction is, wow, your mom must have been an incredible person to have inspired you to do this. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, you know, she was. And um, she was just one of those people that like always had something going on, health issues or whatever, and just was always smiling through it. She was just like an eternal optimist, really. And she was just very 
inspiring and just the very quiet way that she led her life. You know, she was more of a quiet acts of kindness, didn't really talk about it. People always say like, what would she have thought about what you were doing? I'm like, oh, like she's up there like, ah, <laughs> I meant just go look in your neighborhood and see if you see some kindness. Don't go stay with strangers. <laughs> so she was probably freaking out. But yeah, it was like very small things. You know, she was very, I think one of my favorite ways to um, really bottle her up in a the type of personality that she had and who she was, was after she passed away, I moved back home for two months to help my dad. And then I took a one-way ticket to the Caribbean and I've been moving around ever since and my life completely erupted. But in those first two months, I was really worried about him and I came back home and I lived with him. And I think it was maybe a week or two into that time, I had to get everything figured out in the city. I mean, months had passed since she, like two or three months had passed since she had, she had died. But I finally got home and I was home one day and there was a knock at the door and I ran downstairs and it was the UPS guy and he was an older man. And I ran downstairs and I opened the door and he was halfway down the walkway and he turned around so fast with this like look of hope on his face. Mm. And I immediately knew, you know, he thought maybe my mom was away or she had to go into the hospital, but she was home now or something. And then he saw me and I, it was a kid that was home and he didn't usually see me. So you could immediately see the processing on his face and he just kind of tentatively asked, like, your mom? And, you know, I said, she she passed away a couple months ago. And he sat down on the doorstep and just, like, mm. lost it and was, like, talking about how she always sat with him and would talk because his wife had passed from breast cancer also. And they would, she would talk to him. And, like, a few days later, a Jehovah's Witness shows up at the door. And my mom, very strict in her Irish Catholic faith. I mean, my name is Mary Agnes <laughs> and this woman shows up who's a Jehovah's witness and she's this young woman. And the same thing we have to tell her, my dad was home that day and he told mm -hmm. her, she asked for my mom and we were like, what? <laughs> and we're like, she, she's not here. Or she passed away. And she also broke down and said how my mom would always invite her in for a cup of tea and they would just talk about their different views and everything. And so that was my mom <laughs> oh. and we never knew none of us. <laughs> wow. Oh, thank you for sharing that story. That's so beautiful. So you make the decision to get in her old car, right? Which I think was just very symbolic of staying connected to her. And you just have this wild idea that you're just going to travel the country and stay <laughs> with strangers, right? So yeah. tell me, tell me, what you thought it was going to be like, and then what was the reality? Like, did you think it was going to be a glamorous, easy kind of experience? What was, what did you think you were getting yourself into? And how long, how long did you anticipate it was going to last? Yes. Well, that's one of the funniest parts, but I will say just to back up the real push of what got me in the car. And the real reason I yeah. did take this on the road is because like anything, when you start a project or you start this idea that you're passionate about, there's a lot of momentum. People are excited for you. You're excited. You have a lot of energy towards mm -hmm. it. It's kind of like you're riding the wave and then the wave washes into shore and you're like, ah, <laughs> you know, like you really got to struggle to get back out there and ride that wave. in again, and, and, you know, people are still excited for you, but they're not helping as much. And so for me, the project was originally something where people would email stories in. And after she passed away and the wave was the back into shore, I wasn't getting any stories. 
And so I realized instead of getting really discouraged and feeling like people had no stories and they weren't helping and they weren't sending anything in, I figured I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to dig the stories up myself. And that was really what put me in the car. So I knew from the beginning it was going to be hard. I didn't know how hard, but I knew it would be hard. But I knew it was going to be harder for me to stay still Mm -hmm. and just let the project die and the concept die than go out there and at least give it all I could. (laughs) And maybe I come home and I don't get anything, but at least I tried. (laughs) So I think that it originally, I thought maybe a year. Mm-hmm. But it did take three years, 31 days, four hours and 16 minutes, but who's counting? And <laughs> and I think that really what it was and what I figured out was we're in this world that's like so social media based and like we're so reliant on like our amount of likes and people commenting and getting help through that way. But what I found the most was just walking around and talking to people was my biggest connector and my biggest help and being able to get, especially in some states like Alabama or Arkansas or Mississippi, like you know, no one was on social media being like, oh, my friend lives here. But if I was in the area and I was, you know, at a restaurant or walking down the sidewalk and started telling people what I was doing, they'd be like, oh, you got to talk to Fran at the bakery. There was a tornado and she put put all these treats out for the whole community. You know, like people know the stories and, and mm-hmm. they want to talk to you about them. And um, so I think really just getting even further out of your shell and like making yourself talk to all the strangers on the street too, and not really not expecting anything to come easily (laughs) because it sure didn't. And waiting for people to send me emails in my inbox and stuff like that. I mean, my inbox was always empty. It was really just a matter of, of connecting with the people. And then the stories really came in. How vulnerable was it to ask for help and receive help? Like every single night you were staying in some, you know, more than likely someone you didn't know. I mean, you and I were connected through a friend, through somebody I knew who saw you speaking in Florida. Like, you know, we didn't know each other at all, right? And so I just imagine that that must have been such a vulnerable experience and to open yourself up to receive, right? To be able to not only receive, but you needed to rely on other people to just be able to get to your next spot, right? It was definitely a little bit more difficult in the beginning, but really what ended up happening was people were so open with me about my stay and telling me how much it meant to them. Mm. And I think it was kind of like in the beginning, I would, I would hesitate to even tell my story because I didn't want people to be like, oh, like I I didn't want to feel like, look at me, look what I'm doing. Like, how great Mm -hmm. am I? Like, it wasn't about that. It was about sharing something positive with them. But, but I had a very hard time seeing that until one of my hosts literally like smacked me upside the head in the beginning of the trip and said, this isn't about you. Mm. So you need to stop that thinking. When you tell people what you're doing, it really isn't about you. You're just the vehicle that's providing some hope for them, but it's making them feel so much better that there are these stories out there, that there's all these strangers lining up to host you, that it's working, mm-hmm. that you're finding good. Like it's such a message and they and everyone needs to hear it right now. So you need to take yourself out of it and stop thinking like that. And it was something about that conversation, but I was able to share the story a lot better. I mean, it took time, but I I never hesitated or felt like awkward asking for the help because I would get in their homes and we would instantly connect. I mean, there was never a host that I didn't have a good time with or enjoy. Like there's for sure hosts that 
you would maybe connect with stronger or Mm -hmm. you've stayed in touch with more. But for the most part, I truly believe there was a reason that either I ended up in the home or they ended up with me in every single place. And so once you start to believe that, you take that stupid feeling out of asking for help or anything else like that. If the people, especially in this day and age, if someone doesn't want to do anything, usually they're just not going to do it. Like if they're offering to to you out Mm -hmm. of the blue because they Mm -hmm. read a newspaper article, I don't think someone's holding them down, you know, like, so (laughs) I truly believe there is a reason that, you know, if I offered a babysit for my sister on a Friday, yeah, I might regret that all of a sudden come Friday and I have better plans. But with this situation, it was like, I really do feel like we both helped each other in the homes. I love that answer so much because that was my experience of getting to meet you is that it was such an equal exchange or even not equal exchange. Like I received so much by getting to know you, right? And to knowing your story and experiencing how you were looking at the world. So one of my favorite books that I highlighted in the podcast all about stress is this book Burnout by Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski. And they talk about one of the ways to move stress through the body is to have positive social interactions, which would be like you going to a Starbucks and having just this beautiful conversation with a barista that you know you've never met before. But it is telling your body and it's telling your heart and your mind that the world is actually a safe place. And that's what oh. I that's what I see you doing, right? Is that you you were experiencing the death of your mother, you were experiencing the grief, you were experiencing this tragedy of Sandy Hook and you're also holding that paradox of there is still good things happening in the world, right? And we have to make that choice to look for it, right? Oh, yeah. It's definitely it's definitely a choice. <laughs> mm. But I think that also, to your point of the, you know, stress leaving our body, which I don't know if it's all out, but I'm definitely working very hard with my social interacting. But like the other day, and this might have been a month ago, but it's so clear in my head. I went to the dump and, you know, Everyone makes fun of me and my friend group that I go to the dump still because they just put their stuff out in bins and the garbage man comes. But I have this thing where it's like this really nice, like I drive my pickup, I put Guns and Roses on, like it's a whole like, you know, therapeutic time for me. I drive the 25 minutes <laughs> mm-hmm. and I know the people at the dump. So, you know, I'm talking to Dave, he's finally retiring after 40 years and he's going to finally get to enjoy the pool he built last year. And like every time I talk to Dave, And he's like helping me with my bags and everything. It just puts me in like the best mood. And we're we're given all of these ways to make our lives better and more convenient. And all of those ways, their toll booths and easy pass and all this stuff is preventing us from the connections we used to have with Mm. people. And that's what gets us through our day. That little moment. I mean, someone like helped my sister pay for one grocery the other day that was like five bucks. And she left the store crying. She's still (laughs) recovering. And it's just because of the kindness and and it means nothing to these people to do something, but just having these interactions instead of getting everything on Peapod or on Amazon or whatever. And, um, you know, when we actually get out into the world and talk to the people around us, like those connections can literally give us enough energy to get through an entire day. And they put us in such a good mood. Mm -hmm. 
So anyway, that's just I love, and what you focus on grows, right? You can, mm-hmm. you see more of it. So can you share some stories of really big acts of kindness that you encountered on your journey and really tiny, beautiful moments of kindness? Yes. So let's see. I had definitely the big stories are always easy because they're just so insane to me um, that people like this are out there. But one cool story was, and and it always happened like this, I would get to a place and I would start stressing and wondering how I'm going to get a story. And I wouldn't be able to connect to any local coverage to like get my story out there. So people would reach out to me. And so I was in Chicago and it's, you know, the last few days of my visit there and I can't find anything. And I had little things to focus on from the people I stayed with. And I thought maybe that's all I'll focus on. And all of a sudden someone reached out who was connected to my host from North Dakota, who was also a stranger. And they said, oh, you know, Lada told us what you were doing. And I have a coworker whose cousin's friend, you know, like it was some weird connection is, and her sister actually donating a kidney or donating a kidney to a stranger. And I thought maybe it had already happened. I wasn't really sure, but I was like, oh, that's amazing. And I said, you know, would they be willing to talk? And he he said, absolutely. And so I got their phone numbers and I sent them a message. And, you know, it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday and I was leaving that Friday. And I said, hey, like, I heard what you guys did. This is amazing. You know, would you be willing to talk to me? I'm actually leaving on Friday. So if you had time before that, I can come to you. And they responded. They were in like pre-surgery prep. One was getting the kidney done that Thursday and one was getting it done Friday. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you're already going into the hospital. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, but you know, the other one might be a little loopy if you're, if you come on Friday, but if you come Friday afternoon, like before you have to go, like we can talk to you, you know, we'll still be in the hospital. So I went, I think it was like Northwestern if I, my brain sometimes works, I'm not sure. Northwestern Memorial and downtown Chicago. And so I meet them. It was right around St. Patrick's Day. The whole river was green. And I go into the hospital, into the hospital room where one of the sisters is like fresh out of surgery, like with an eye patch because something happened with her eye and her glasses on. She's all loopy. The other sister comes over from her room and then the mom and brother. And it's like this extremely intimate affair, just their family and me. (laughs) It just kind of fell into my lap in that last moment. But it was such a cool story. and their whole thing was that their father had had kidney problems his whole their whole life and so they grew up watching their dad always in the hospital always in pain and so their brother donated his kidney to the dad when he was able to and the dad got eight quality years of life and suddenly was going to their games playing catch with them in the backyard like part of their lives mm. and so it inspired them so much that they decided you know after he had passed away that they were each going to donate a kidney to a stranger to give that stranger, that, that experience also. And I'm talking to them about their dad and asking them about him. And they said, he used to always say when he would drop them off at school in the morning, make the day better for someone else. And I'm like sitting in this hospital room, like you guys really knocked it out of the park with this. Like you saved lives today. (laughs) So it was just such a cool. So yeah, there was definitely stories and, and, you know, those big, huge moments of kindness, but then there was the really little ones, which I think, like I said, you know, we have no idea the impact that these tiny little moments can be on other people and what they're going through when they receive these acts of kindness, because that's what makes them remember them. And so I feel like there are so many of them, but 
obviously my favorite one that I always go back to is the M&M one, where it was a woman who was working at a bank one summer and she was having a really bad day and it was visible on her face. And someone came in to deposit money or something. And they kind of looked at her and they said, are you doing okay? You look like you're having a hard day. And she was super embarrassed. She didn't know the person. So she kind of just tried to make a joke and laugh it off and said, oh yeah, nothing some M&Ms won't fix when I get out of work later. And the lady laughed and she left. And then 30 minutes later, she came back into the bank and slipped a bag of M&Ms under the window to her and walked out. And the bank teller never saw her again, like swore that she was an angel. (laughs) And, you know, When I first heard that story, it was right in the beginning of the three-year journey. So I'm like in month one or two. And I had no idea. I mean, I thought maybe her boyfriend broke up with her that day or she stubbed her toe on the way to work. Like, who knows? Well, this woman told me the story and it had happened 30 years ago. And she told her kids and her grandkids. And it just made me realize, I mean, we have no idea what happened that day. And I never found out. But, you know, someone could have died in her family. She could have gotten diagnosed with cancer. I mean, there's just... Everyone is walking around with such heavy stuff right now and their own stories and their own traumas. And for her to have been able to vividly remember something 30 years ago that impacted her so much that she keeps sharing the story. I mean, it was just a very cool moment. And I always like sharing that story mostly because when we hear the big stories, they're almost overwhelming. Even for me, I'm like, I can't donate a kidney. I mean, I'm sure if I had to or as a family member, I would pull it together. But I'm terrified of hospitals and and the thought of that is overwhelming, but I can buy a bag of M&Ms for someone, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and like we are capable of doing these little things. And it's just a, it's a very easily translated story for people to kind of put into their own lives and put into action. I love that story because it was such a small moment that has been passed down for years and years, right? It's that concept of like, people will remember how, you made them feel, right? Yes. Seen. Oh, and I've told that yes. story all over the entire country. I actually wrote so, the lady back and said, you know, and I, I think I told it on like the Today Show or something too, but she kept up with the journey and she said, oh, I know I've seen it. Like, yeah. you know, but it's just so funny. I never even met her. Yeah. She just mm-hmm. emailed that story and it was one of the like five emails I received in three years. <laughs> mm. Oh, I love that. I I wasn't going to bring this up, but I was recently given this little dog, this carved dog, and I went and got it as I was preparing to do this interview with you because this is a recent act of kindness that I received. I was walking with a dear friend, a place I've never walked before on the Erie Canal, and we were both walking with our dogs and just having this great, beautiful, beautiful time connecting And we get to the parking lot and this older gentleman comes up to me and he's like, may I pet your dog? And I was like, absolutely, have at it. He would be offended if you didn't, right? (laughs) My new puppy is very much into the attention of others. And so he's, Bozzy the dog is just sitting there loving all the attention. And this man hands me this beautiful wooden carved dog, which I now keep in my car on the dashboard to just remind me that kindness is everywhere, right? And I'm in the moment receiving it and feel so just love it, so grateful for him, right? And I turn and look at my friend and she's crying. And I'm like, what's happening here? Right. Like it was clearly a bigger moment than I was comprehending at the time. And she's like, looks at the man and says, wait here a moment. 
right? She goes to her car, gets out a carved dog, different carved dog that this man had given her a year before on a day that she had received really, really bad news. And she was out walking her dog by herself, crying alone. And this man shared this act of kindness. And so to meet him a year later, when she was feeling much better, and it was just such a moment. So she had to go get it and share it with him and show him like, look at how much this meant to me. I've kept it in my car for the last year. And it's helped me keep going through this really difficult year that I've had. Right. And yeah. yeah, so now I keep mine in my car to remind me. And I just brought it. I went and got it about 10 minutes before you and I sat down because we have to continue. We have to look for these moments and be reminded of it. And and so maybe, Mary, yeah, maybe your job isn't to donate your kidney. Right. Your <laughs> job is to be the vehicle to share these stories, right? To impact so many people. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I do usually, I say, we all have our thing that we can do and I can't do that, but I can tell you about them (laughs) and I can write up their stories and I can share as many stories. So we just have to figure out what our Mm -hmm. thing is really. But that's so, I literally just gave me shivers and I was about to cry. Mm -hmm. That's such a beautiful thing. And I think these things do, they always happen when it's like you need it the most or someone around Mm -hmm. you needs it the most or whatever it is. And when you said that, it really quickly reminded me, I never had people in the car with me, except for once when um, one of my best friends I had made in the Caribbean, she came and she was in the car with me for 10 days. And it was the most, you know, having a total, it was in the beginning of the journey, the first year of the journey. And here she is. And for me, it was like, how do you even, I'm already asking to go into these homes and do all this stuff. And I'm not going to be like, oh, I have a friend in tow. So that's why it was never a thing. Also, it wasn't like it was a fun trip. (laughs) So like, I didn't really want anyone else there either. And it was just like a very specific personal journey, but she did come with me. And I think we were on our first story of the trip together. And it was this man and he was in New Orleans and he was talking about, he works with football players to work with kids with cancer. And so, you know, this one nine or 10 year old kid had really wanted to meet this one football player. And so he made that happen. And he's telling us this really beautiful story about it and how the, why the work he does is so important, why he keeps doing it, even though it's challenging or funding is hard. He said this one kid though, in this one specific story, after they had met the football player, like took the kid's number and would like call him and check in with him like once a week. And like, they would have these phone chats and everything. And they were super close. And he shows me the background of his phone. And it's a picture of the two of them pounding. And like the kid is in a wheelchair. He passed away shortly after the parents said that was the best, like kept him alive longer, that relationship. And he has this huge smile on his face and he's, they're pounding their fists. And the football player has this huge smile on his face too. And it's the screensaver on his phone. And he's showing me how how it's been the screensaver for the last like 10 years of his life to remind him of this work and why it's so important and why he does that. Well, I'm in like New Orleans was, Louisiana was, I don't know, somewhere around 14th state maybe. So I'm learning how to control myself for the most part. Like I'm obviously very touched by the story, but I'm trying to hold it together because these are their stories and I'll get in the car and cry later. But for right now, I'm trying to keep it together. Well, I look over at my friend who's joined me And she's at the end and we're in like a conference table. He's at his regular job. He came out for a break to tell us the story. And we're in like a little conference room at at his uh, company. And I look over at her and she is beat red, 
Tears are pouring out like a cartoon, honestly, dumping out of her eyes and bouncing off of the conference table. She's like, I'm sorry. (laughs) And we get in the car and we get to our next story. And that story ends. And she tells me, I love you. I will be happily entertaining you in the car, but I cannot go to another story. It has been 48 hours. All you fed me is coffee. I don't even know when you eat. I don't know how you do these stories. I am so sad and overwhelmed in emotion, but everything is so beautiful, but I'm also so traumatized. She was like, I can't do this. But it was just like really interesting to like see like it really is like such an overwhelming amount of emotions to go through these stories and see these tragedies, but then see the beauty that comes out of them. And it's just like that feeling of like, to be so touched by someone else's story, like literally you telling me about your friend, like I was like, could cry thinking Mm -hmm. about it. And I don't know her. And at least I know you. So there's some tie. But for a lot of them, like people don't know the M&M lady and people cry when I share that story sometimes. And it's just so beautiful because it's showing that we, that connection is back, like in that one moment to feel that feeling for someone else is such a beautiful thing. But also, yeah, why I rolled out of my car at the end of the journey. (laughs) Yes. Oh, thank you for sharing that insight of your friend, of someone seeing what your experience has been like. So that's what we do on this podcast is talk about the emotions and how we can move them through our bodies and what that feels like. So how did you take care of yourself on this journey? Or did you sometimes fail at that? I know that there were a lot of challenges. How did you allow yourself to feel all of these feelings and do something productive with it, right? Which is ultimately this platform of sharing them and then writing the book and and all of this. Yeah. How do you deal with all the emotions? You know, I wouldn't say I did great at it. (laughs) I think that for me, the concept of just continuing to move forward through it was really important. I don't think there was some kind of trick. I mean, I look back on it now and I think, oh, maybe if I took a week between each week to like do the writing and write up the stories, then I could have gotten off the road and my book would be done everything. But I think I'd still be on the road. Well, I won with COVID, but I'd be on the road for 20 years instead of three. You know, I don't know if there was a a certain way that I could have done it different or better, but For me, I just think that I'm doing that now. I'm trying to get rest now. I'm trying to recover now, um, now that the journey is over. But it was such a like shot of adrenaline to like, I would get to meetings a lot of the times and be so tired from the night before and having to stay Mm -hmm. with new hosts and telling the stories and staying up too late or having an extra glass of wine or whatever. You know, for them, it was a party. Like you were just with them for a night or two. But for me, it was like every night. But you get to a place and you know you're going to have to tell your story again. And you know that you're going to have to, you know, not want to miss these opportunities of hearing their stories and everything else. And you're exhausted. And so, of course, when they offer you a glass of wine, well, yeah, you're I'm just going to be talking to a stranger for a few hours. And so it was so hard. Like every night I'd get places and be like, tonight I'll rest. Tonight I'll go to bed early. And it never happened. Mm-hmm. But I definitely, you know, some hosts were more um, healing than others. Like, obviously, you, you brought me to like a yoga class, like doing certain things like that was so beneficial. But it was rare, you know, that that happened. But yeah, I think that it was just something that you just got to get through it. You know, there was no real and, and I did get really sick that I think I told you about with my Lyme disease halfway through and my dad begged me. He was like, come home you know, you did half the country, that's good enough. Mm -hmm. And 
just said, you know, you really need to take a break. And I knew that it would make it worse. Like the depression and emotional and mental stuff that was going on was so much bigger than the physical that I was like, if I have to just keep going, I have to finish this trip because I can't not finish it. Like it was so stuck in my head when I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. Mm -hmm. It might take a long time like this book, but I will do it. Yeah. So I think that for me, that was, you know, just the physical kind of was pushed aside and I just kind of pushed through it. But yeah, I mean, stretching more, hydrating more, those were all great things Mm -hmm. I should have done. (laughs) In theory. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that this journey was healing your grief and also the depression as you, because it was like what you just shared that it would have been harder for you to stop than to keep going, right? Do you believe that this was some sort of healing balm for you to handle the grief of your mother and and the depression you were experiencing? It was very hard for me to look at it that way because I was so broken at the end yeah. of it. Like emotionally, I felt very emotionally distant and disconnected from a lot of people in my life because they didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what I had just done. I mean, people would be like, oh, how was your vacation? <laughs> your three-year vacation? Like. <laughs> So I think that sitting and listening to people's traumas as an unlicensed therapist for three years across America, none of that felt healing exactly. Did it provide a massive amount of perspective? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that it made me extremely grateful for my mother, for the relationship I had with my mother, for my family, for my friends, for my support group, for, for a lot of different things. Gratitude played a huge role in the journey, perspective of other people's scenarios, hope in the fact that it worked out, pride, like I was proud of myself that I stayed determined and I made it happen. Like there was a lot of emotions. Healing was never one I really thought about, honestly. Yeah. But I think once I can finish this book Mm -hmm. and really look back on everything and be done with that part, I will look at it differently. Mm-hmm. I really do think I will, but I think I'm still kind of stuck in the middle of it and processing it. So it still feels hard to uh, see yeah. to me, healing was like after she passed and I like got out and like left and jumped around and that was all very scary. And it was leaps of faith after leaps of faith of trying to start a new life in different places and persisting, even though it was very challenging to be in different places by yourself. But then I went to Italy and actually that friend who was falling in the story, she came with me and we found this amazing apartment with three Italian girls who all spoke English. And, you know, the rent was like 300 bucks a month. <laughs> We're like a five minute walk from the Duomo, having like chocolate croissants for breakfast every morning and pizza in the shape of hearts for dinner and little gardens that we would find. And I would do some writing or book an engagement shoot or something. That was healing. Like that was like, oh, you're seeing the beauty in life again and eating good food and not getting heartburn and stomach aches like everything in America gives me. And so that was a really beautiful experience. Then I got in the car and it was like, ah. (laughs) So I don't know. I think that in a way, yes, it was like cathartic and good and nice to be able to to talk about her and keep her alive in such a way. But it was kind of like when you have those moments in therapy with this breakthrough and you're crying and you're feeling all the feelings, it just felt like I was doing that every day to myself. So it was like yeah. so heavy. Mm. Anyway, so yeah, 
Not the first yeah. word that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm so grateful to to hear you clarify that because it it really also paints the picture. I know you and I both love Cheryl Strayed so much, and it feels very similar in the sense of her journey of you know hiking the PCT that ultimately inspired the book and the movie Wild, and that journey was so hard and raw. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing you say that, that, yeah, maybe someday this will look, we'll look back at it differently, but you were in such that raw, vulnerable state, right? And and, and actually what I think is interesting with her that I just heard recently was that she just did that trip. And then years and years later, she wrote about it, yeah. but it was never her intention. She just did the journey. See, I think in that weird way, I always had that pressure like that I did to myself of don't forget any detail. Don't not live every single moment. Don't, you know, like, because you have to write this all down and you have to show people what you saw. And it's so much pressure to really be able to like paint an exact picture of what you experienced. Yeah. And so I think that like, that was also weighing on me in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a lot of ways. Yeah. And my experience I knew that you were coming. I was so excited and inspired. It was, you know, towards the end of your journey, the very end of your journey. And I had all of these intentions of how it was going to look. And I love to take care of people and bring them in my home and feed them. And my husband and I have done, you know, house concerts and hosted fishermen for years and years. So we love doing this, right? And mm -hmm. the night you got here, you had. A CNN team with you doing, doing, they were going to be following you, which also meant they were going to be all up in, in our home this whole time as well. And the night you got here, our beloved dog Hunter, he came out, saw you, you know, was on the cameras for a second. And then I just knew in my heart, something was wrong, like something was wrong. And it was ultimately him transitioning. It was the very end of his life. And it just really reminded me that when you are going into people's homes, you are also getting real life. Like life is happening, right? It's yeah. like everything that I had intended on how I wanted to take care of you and love up on you and help you rest. It was just like, there was also a part of me that had to, um, I remember, you know, Ian and I shutting our bedroom door to be with our beloved dog while CNN was just in all different rooms of the house. And, yeah. and I know this wasn't your typical experience. This was a very oh, one, God, one time thing, but it was just this fascinating experience of me having to create boundaries to protect, you know, him as, as he was transitioning and during this time and, and what that looked like. And also there was no hiding my emotion, right? Like yeah. one person asked me for an extension cord and I started crying, right? Like there was no hiding it. And it was, it was just this really profound experience of this is who I am right now. Right. Yeah. And you, I mean, you just had such beautiful grace about you, right? I remember you walking into the bedroom and I had laid out a book for you, like on the nightstand and you were like, it was somehow connected to your mom, right? Like it just felt mm -hmm. like she was very present with us through that. 
And instead of me taking care of you, I felt like you were very much present to what I needed and how to help me through this moment in time. And you ended up leaving your car here because I think you were going to Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. Yeah. So you came back and we had some more time together, which was really beautiful. Hunter had passed on by the time you got back. And, but it was just this this vulnerability that existed of you going into people's homes, people's lives were not stopping. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, and it was, well, first of all, also it was so weird because remember I was going to the school and I took that picture and I was thinking about that, like of you and Hunter. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like it was just so random, but I remember like I was late, but you were outside taking pictures and I was like, she never gets to be in the picture. (laughs) Like, Cause you were taking pictures of like, or something. I don't remember, but, um, but I was just like, I don't care that I'm late. I'm just like, it's a place teenagers anyway. But like, I just remember thinking like, you have to do this, like this pull of like, and that would happen a lot. And it was just interesting, like for then everything to happen. But yeah, I obviously never had a CNN crew following me before. And, um, that was super overwhelming for me. And it was, it was a testament to the fact that in the beginning of the trip, I was interviewing a woman who her high school sweetheart and husband of, you know, whatever it was, or at least they were together for 40 years, not 40 years, 25 years or something. He had just passed away. She had just turned 40. She had three daughters under 12. And she wanted to tell me all about this like nurse that was amazing and would like come and sit with her on Friday nights while she was in the ICU for like four months and bring her her favorite dinner and all this stuff. And so the fact that it was like a month out of her husband dying and she has all these kids at home and she's like coming and meeting me at a coffee shop, doesn't know me at all. Tell me about how a nurse was nice to her. I was like very humbling. And this voice in my head that it kept saying, like, you got to take video. You got to take video. People want to see these people. They want to feel it. Like this could be a Netflix thing, a documentary, blah, blah, blah. And I always was like very, would shy away from that and was like, no, 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 no. But then I don't know, someone, the way they worded it, I was like, I don't know, maybe I could somehow roll something. And so we had talked for a while. She got to know me a little bit and we were definitely very comfortable with each other. And I said, like, would you mind if I took like a little video of you just kind of explaining a little bit of what what you just told me? And she was like, no, that's okay. But I completely saw the demeanor change. Like she was like nervous and like frozen and I started rolling and she looked like she was about to cry. And I was like, you know what? Never mind. I turned it off. Like, 30 seconds of footage, turned it off, put it away, never took it out again. I was like, this is not what what I want for my trip. So <laughs> I'm sorry you got put through that. But it was, it was such a vulnerable thing and to be in people's homes where they were going through. And it was hard for me too, because then I was like, are they upset with me? Like, obviously something as obvious as your dog, like that I can separate, but sometimes they wouldn't necessarily tell you, but they would be a little short. And you're like, did I do something? Did I touch the last Coca-Cola in the fridge and now they're upset? Like what you put in your head to try to understand why they're they're upset about something at work, something with their husband, like it has nothing to do with you, but you don't know and you're in their home. So like kind of walking that tight line of like realizing that, but also being very aware that their lives are continuing on and and all this other stuff. It was definitely, it was a challenge, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it was also personal and private and I would never want to be abusing that in a way of bringing a video or anything else into their homes. And so, yeah, that's why it was never anything that I wanted until the end where, I don't know, I thought it would help. It didn't. Yeah. I thought maybe a publisher would come through. It didn't. Like I like that really yeah. in my head, I was like, maybe this is some last push in the final things. And you were so on board with it that I thought, oh, maybe this is a good thing. But I mean, it was definitely a cool experience, mm-hmm. but it didn't really like, uh, 
do much for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that is how it works, right? The things we think might move it forward, but it may be, it may come from somewhere else. And I know I yeah. love your Instagram. Yeah. It's like the, the, I know that, you know, through all the stories you share on your Instagram, it's like, there's all these divine moments of just people that have been connected in the right moment and the right person at the right time. And just that feeling that the world is not nearly as big as we make it seem like we are much more connected. Right. Oh yeah. Hmm. I want to share this. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I want to share this one quote before we move into our rapid fire questions. This was off of your Instagram. Your Instagram is at more good today and we'll link it in the show notes as well. So this was you talking about being in someone's home. If by sharing my stories with them, it would force them to travel down memory lane of their own lives and remember some good, maybe that was another perk of more good. A reminder that all of our lives at some point have been sprinkled with some type of joy. A teacher who believed in us, a neighbor who helped us out, a stranger who did something kind. More good didn't come into your home to talk about politics or controversial topics. It came in to remind you of the good. But despite all the bad that is out there, and trust me, I'm not naive to it, there is really a lot of good. Sometimes we just have to sit down and remember it. (laughs) I yeah, that was that lady in Minnesota. Yeah. I just love that moment because I think that's the reality was you asked for help and received help, but you gave so much. And I know you gave so much to me just by being here through one of a really challenging time for me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. All right, let's do a few rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. What's your favorite book? The Alchemist. Mine too. That is oh, my, really? my all time favorite, favorite book in the world. I just bought another copy at a book sale this weekend because I just give it away so much. It's my favorite book. Literally, Ugh. my dad just bought me another copy this weekend because he lost my copy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm, and I, Which moved- I was like, it's fine. I've read it a million times, but yeah. Oh yeah. It took me 10 years. I was given it. I was studying abroad in Italy in Florence, the Duomo near the Duomo. Yeah. I was studying abroad and my roommate, this woman I met Anya handed me this book. It was like 2004. I moved from 2004 to 2013. I moved about seven times. And every time I would purge and get rid of things, I never read the book. And I moved with this book for 10 years before I read it. Like every every time I would go to be like, why am I keeping this? Something would tell me just to hold on to it. So 10 years when I was finally ready, it was like 2013, 2014. I read it and it changed my life and I have now read it every single year since then. So I know I wanted to reread it. That's why I was like, where is it? And then he was like, I can't find it. I'm sure it's somewhere in this house. But I also just love the backstory to it of like how he wrote it and it sold a couple and then they stopped publishing it. And then someone else just took a chance for no reason. They don't know. And they started publishing it. And it was like 20 years before it became as famous and popular as it did now. Mm-hmm. But it's just like such a story of persistence and like with the story, but also with his story of getting it scene. And um, yeah, I just, it's so good. It's so Mm. good. (laughs) So everybody, if you have not read it, rush out and read The Alchemist, the best book ever. Mm. Okay. What are you currently reading right now? 
so I usually read a few books at a time, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I just finished last night. Hello, Molly, Molly Shannon's memoir, mm-hmm. which was really good. And I am also reading a book by Matt, my Matt Haig right now, um, Reasons to Stay Alive. Ooh. And I am reading a brief history of the United States, which I've been reading for about like two months that I just read a paragraph of. Yep. So yeah, I usually have like something like historical going on and then like something yep. funny and then something like self-helpy. <laughs> awesome. And is Matt Haig who wrote the comfort book? Which one? Did he write the comfort book? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read either of those. Uh, another great yeah. one. Yeah. And Midnight okay. Library. Yeah. He's, he's a really okay. good author. Awesome. All right. Adding that to my list. What is one thing you know for sure? You have to have faith. Hmm. In whatever way that means for whoever you are. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Thank you. And do you have a favorite quote, poem, saying something you want to leave us with? I do. It's a little long. Perfect. We'll so take it. I have to read it. I don't have it memorized. But I had shared it once, so you might have seen it. Um, when I was in on my journey and I was in Idaho, I was getting to a stop where there had just been, and I won't say all of them because it's too sad, but there was a couple tragedies all at once when I arrived to town and I felt pretty silly walking around in a shirt that said more good in this community that was clearly really grieving and going through a really difficult time. And I found this quote during that and it really helped me. It's by Cleo Wade, who I love. And it says, today I am breathing through my fear of what is going on in America, because when I breathe, I am reminded I am alive. I am reminded that to be able to fill my body with air means that I have the ability to keep going. I'm reminded that my time on earth may be short, but it can be powerful if I dedicate it to love and fairness. Finally, I'm reminded of Mary Oliver when she wrote, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. I breathe, I smile, I close my eyes and reply as much as I can. Mm. I love that so much. That kind of kept me going. (laughs) Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You can visit. We'll put the links in the show notes. Her website is moregood.today and Instagram is at moregoodtoday. Anything else you want to share about what you have going on or how people can follow you? Nope. Just, yeah, if they want to read some stories or if they have any stories to share, then reach out on moregoodtoday. Perfect. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode.
This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.